Hey friends, welcome to Girls' Night. I'm Stephanie Mae Wilson, and I am so happy that you're here. Each week, I have a girlfriend over, and we talk through one of the biggest questions we have about our lives as women. We're talking about friendships, and faith, and relationships, and self-confidence. About our calling in life, and how to live every bit of our lives to the absolute full. Life is so much better, and easier, and absolutely more fun when we navigate it together as girlfriends, and I cannot wait to get started. Friends, today we're talking about what to do when you're trying to get pregnant, but it's just not happening. If you're anything like me, you had a pretty clear idea of what you thought was going to happen once you decided to start trying to have a baby. You've thought about this a lot, right? You've talked about it, prayed about it, journaled about it, read books and blogs and listened to podcasts about it. You've spent more time than you maybe want to admit plugging different dates into the due date calendar online. You think, okay, if we start trying this month and we get pregnant this month, then the baby will be born this month. You know the drill. You went ahead and relearned all the things you were supposed to have learned about your reproductive system and health class, and you're doing all the right things in the exact right way at the exact right time. Things that seem to be working for everybody else in the whole entire world, but still you're not pregnant. If you're anything like me, the plan you so carefully crafted for starting your family just is not going the way you thought it would. And it is so hard. It's so hard and we cannot do this alone, which is why I knew we needed to start talking about this more on Girls' Night and why I knew I wanted to bring on my new friend, Kathy Quilla, to help us along the way. Kathy is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a fertility coach, an author, and a speaker who specializes in infertility and pregnancy loss along with the treatment of those in seasons of pregnancy, postpartum, and adoption. She owns Tennessee Reproductive Therapy and the Quillet Institute, which both support the mental health needs of those going through seasons of infertility and loss. Kathy has a wealth of knowledge on this topic and has lived through infertility herself, so I'm so excited for you to get to know her and for you to get to learn from her. She's gonna teach us what to do in the midst of this struggle, what resources and help are available to us, how to take care of our marriages and our mental health along the way, how to respond when friends or family members ask us uncomfortable questions about kids or our future plans, and so much more. Now, there's one thing I wanted to make sure to say before we get started. My hope is that the things we share in this episode are encouraging and helpful. But if one of these topics is triggering for you or just not what you need to listen to right now, please, please, please feel free to skip over it. This episode is a resource for you, and I want it to serve you however you need it, okay? Okay, one more thing before we dive in. There is another resource I wanted to share with you, and it's my newest prayer journal called The Between Places, 100 Days to Trusting God When You Don't Know What's Next. I actually wrote this book as my husband Carl and I were going through IVF, and so this book is so close to my heart. It's for women who are in the thick of it, written by a woman who was, and still is in so many ways, totally in the thick of it. I love this journal because it's a powerful, practical way for us to connect with God in times when our future feels really uncertain. Through guided prayer prompts, the Between Places will help you trust God with the trickiest, most uncertain, and most important parts of your life. It'll help you believe more fully than ever that God is good, that He loves you, and that He's taking care of you. It'll help you live today with more contentment, step into the future with more courage and faith, and rest in God's peace knowing that He's with you every step of the way. To order a copy of your own, just head to my website. It's stephaniemaywilson.com, and that link will also be in our show notes. Okay. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Kathy. All right, friends, I'm so excited for who I get to introduce you to today. I'm sitting here with Kathy Quillett. And Kathy, I came across you a while ago and have been wanting to have you on the show ever since. And so just thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. I'm excited to be a part of it. 
So Kathy, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and a fun fact about yourself? Sure. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. I specialize in reproductive and maternal mental health. I own Tennessee Reproductive Therapy in uh, our shared hometown, Stephanie, of Nashville. And I also own the Quilla Institute, which is a passion project of mine to provide coaching and resources uh, for those struggling through the seasons of infertility, pregnancy loss, pregnancy, postpartum, and also adoption. So a little bit about me is um, I wasn't able to have children. That's not my fun fact because that's not very fun. <laughs> but I was unable to have children, um, but I'm a mother by way of adoption. So my husband and I felt really called uh, in the middle of our journey to adopt from Ethiopia. So our boys are eight and nine now, and they'll we're going to celebrate eight years home. It's our family anniversary. We're going to celebrate that um, in September. So eight years that it, I've gotten to be their mama. So the story took quite a detour. Uh, the Lord was faithful and answered the, my heart cry to become a mama in difficult in a different way than what I thought. But sometimes I look at them and I think if my way would, my prayer would have been answered in the way that I tried to pigeonhole, pigeonhole God, then I could have missed this. And so super, super grateful for that. My fun fact. So my kids uh, a couple years ago had some really good friends and um, they were all at school and I was at the house with the mom. She and I were good friends too. And I decided that I, you know, uh, mid thirties, but still probably thought I had some athleticism to me. So I decided to get um, on their child's hoverboard and I, I flew off got a concussion, broke my elbow, had to go to the Bone and Joy Institute here in Nashville and get that fixed. So as she tried to describe it uh, to my husband, as I'm like concussed and broken, she was like, it was, <laughs> it was like laundry. Your stuff was everywhere. <laughs> like it just kind of spun me and I flew and yeah. So I, I'm one of those people that you could have watched a fail video of broke my elbow on a hoverboard. Oh my gosh. I, I honestly, I think I've tried to get on a skateboard like twice. I just don't have the like center of gravity in the right spot to be able to balance like that on something that is moving. Oh, I know that I cannot balance on a skateboard, but I thought maybe a two wheeled electronic thing. Stephanie, I didn't even go forwards or backwards. I spun to the left. Like that's all I did until the momentum flew me probably several feet. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. So, I'm, I mean, that, to me, that makes you like so much tougher. Like I'm just. Yeah. PSA, don't ride hoverboards. <laughs> unless you totally know what you're doing, in which case we think you're really cool. Unless you're nine and have a good center of gravity. Yeah. Gravity. Yeah. Maybe, okay. Maybe you have to be nine, uh, in which case you probably are not listening to the show right now. <laughs> Well, if you are, go back to school. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Well, so, um, Kathy, I, you know, you told us a little bit of your story, but I'd love to hear more, if you're willing, just kind of more about what your journey to becoming a mom has looked like. And because I'm guessing that's a lot of what propelled you to do the work that you do today. Right? Is that right? 
So I had been a marriage and family therapist for about a decade. When I first started uh, in my practice, people said, just don't niche yourself until you know yourself. And so I saw a little bit of everything. Now, my husband and I got married in 2008. And our answer to everybody that like awkwardly said at our wedding, like, when are you going to have babies? Was we're going to wait two years and have two, maybe three kids. I always say we're both from three children households, but we only wanted to pay for two to go to college. (laughs) So three would have been an oopsie because everybody has oopsies, right? That's what the fertile lies are. And so um, about a year into our marriage, I started developing really bad pelvic pain. Like I'm a therapist. I sit for a living. I struggled to sit. And that took me to a gynecologist, laparoscopy, hysteroscopy, which are surgeries, one's robotic to go in and look around at what's going on. And the other one does the cleaning. And I remember waking up and my husband was like squishing my face. And he said, honey, I'm so sorry. It's everywhere. Um, he's like, I'm not even sure what is all down in your pelvic region, but if it is, it has endo on it, endometriosis and it's everywhere. So there was too much to clean even because that would have created too much scar tissue. And so, um, our options were Lupron, which was artificial menopause and artificial hormones. And I do not get along. Mm -hmm. And so, or trying to conceive or birth control and hormones and I don't get along. So we started trying to conceive eight months later, we were elated that we found out we were pregnant. Um, I'm going to throw my husband under the bus, but not disrespectfully because I would, if he was here too. (laughs) My husband got so excited that he um, went and got a chainsaw and cut down a tree. Because I guess when you find out you're going to be a new dad, like adrenaline, testosterone take over and you become a lumberjack. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I don't know. So (laughs) he cut down a tree. Yeah, okay. I liked the tree. It was a beautiful birch, but evidently it was in his way when he mowed. I don't know. Oh my gosh. All right. All right. We all react. Yep. Love it. You're right. We do all react. And so that pregnancy was with us for 10 weeks Mm -hmm. and I developed really bad. And I'm going to tell this part of the story because I'm sure somebody else feels this way when you're in health class or when you go to your first prenatal appointment. And we had seen the heartbeat twice because of what was already going on in me. First of all, nobody tells you that pregnant, I mean, you know, miscarriages happen. They happen to somebody else though, or they happen to your parents. They don't happen to you. And nobody tells you that when you have to have a miscarriage, that pregnancy has to come out. And the longer you're pregnant, the more like a delivery it becomes. So I knew that I had lost the pregnancy. Now, let me just give my husband some credit here. We were in that stale room of our local hospital and we found out the baby had no heartbeat from the ultrasound tech who didn't want to be there as much as we didn't want to be there. And my husband, like I stood up with my paper gown on and my husband just grabbed me as I fell. And again, he squeezed my face because I guess that's what he has to do when we have heart information. And he said, honey, look at me and promise me promise me this isn't going to change us. And through tear stained cheeks and all the brokenness I could, you know, try and keep up off the ground. I'm always like, I promise, but I don't know what this means. I remember calling my boss on the way home and being like, "Mm, I'm having a miscarriage, but I don't know what it means. Let me grieve tomorrow. I'll be back in two days. So I, um, we went home and I have a heart condition where I'm never supposed to labor. 
And a couple days later, um, sick, crampy, but I started going into what was the act of labor to get my quote products of conception out of me. And because of that, like my eyes are rolling into the back of my head cause I'm never supposed to do this. My husband calls the doctor, a friend of ours from church, who's a PCP and is like, she's in labor. That's what has to happen. I didn't know that from my OB though, because she was on maternity leave. I love her dearly, but her nurse just didn't call me back. And so long story short, that one, uh, we lost that one started trying to conceive when we were able to 13 months later, we found out that we were pregnant again in those 13 months. I was diagnosed with pretty severe polycystic ovary syndrome. And I also had to have surgery to remove my gallbladder unrelated, but it delayed us. And if you've been in the middle of infertility, you know how traumatizing any delay can be. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that set us back. Um, So 13 months after, so, you know, two years after we started trying, I was pregnant for the second time. That one was with us for five weeks. The next one was with us for six weeks. That was a couple of months later. Then the fourth one was with us for seven weeks. Um, so I was diagnosed with something that not a lot of people are familiar with, and that's called adenomyosis. Some people call it adenomyosis. And so that is, my doctor described it, that a normal person, normal healthy woman's uterus is like a, uh, like an orange peel, which is kind of hard and secure. I mean, obviously it's not hard, hard, but strong. And mine was like a wet, soggy sponge uh, because... I don't know if I said this, one of my, my miscarriages bled into my uterus instead of out. And so my uterus was wet and soggy and sitting on my pelvic floor. Uh, so I, I still 10 years later have lots of nerve damage from that. So at 32, I had a hysterectomy. Uh, we actually moved to Nashville four years ago. They left one ovary because again, the hormone thing for me, and it was my first fall here and my remaining ovary twisted and died. Um, and I was internally bleeding. So that was fun. Um, I went in, they thought I needed my appendix out and he was like, no, you don't. You needed a, an oophorectomy is what we call it an ovary removal. But he's like, I took your appendix too. Cause I was right there. Most people don't need it. And I was like, I didn't sign that form. Oh my gosh. But yeah. So I'm down in the appendix, the gallbladder and all my my pelvic stuff. So that's, a, so, um, it was, uh, the summer of 2013 that we brought home the kids and shortly thereafter that we, um, had my hysterectomy. So long story, but that's all of it. Thank you for sharing that with us. I really appreciate that. I know that there are women listening, you know, we've started talking about, um, we started talking about fertility period on the show a little while ago, I guess a year and a half or so when I finally was uh, announcing that I was pregnant. I, cause I, I went through a whole long journey with my own fertility and uh, didn't talk about it on the show because I was just trying to get through it. And so we've been talking about it since then, since I've been able to start talking about it. And um, I know that we have women listening that are going through all kinds of things with their bodies. And so I know that there are women who are just like, yep, that's me or that piece is me. Or, um, so anyway, I'm really grateful that they 
know that they're not alone because they're not. Yeah. Well, infertility lies and says you're the only one going through this because statistically we are in the minority and it's a fertile world and we're living in it and trying to survive in it. So if I can just be somebody in your corner to one of your listeners and say, you're not alone. You are so not alone. There are a world of women who get it, but we're just quiet because people don't understand us. Yeah. Yeah. But you're not alone. When did you decide that you wanted to start talking about or like working with people who were going through this? So I remember going back to uh, the office after I think it was my, yeah, it was my first miscarriage. And I had had new clients because I was out for a while. And I mean, the normal amount of time. And my, I had the three new clients that I had was somebody who had just had an abortion, somebody who had just had a miscarriage and somebody that couldn't get pregnant. And so I thought, okay, this is really interesting. And, but I still was in the middle of my own story. I loved being able to empathize with them. When I studied for my national marriage and family therapy exam, uh, in 2007, there was, it was a six, 700 page book. I don't remember. And there was a front and back. I mean, about infertility. Are you serious? We're We're talking about marriage and family. So the people that can create babies in that life development stage, two pages front and back out of 600 pages. So, you know, I always say that IVF's only 40, probably two years old by now. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's about how old our first IVF baby is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mental health's usually like 20 years behind, I feel like. And so as I treated these people, I, after my first miscarriage, I was interested in it, but all I could do was speak from my own experience. And I still had a lot of story to get through. Um, I wrote, so I've actually written uh, four books. And the first one is called Not Pregnant. I wrote it with my OB-GYN. It's a companion for the emotional journey of infertility. And it's kind of like what nobody tells you about infertility. And that it's lonely, that sex becomes a job, that you can be apathetic, that you isolate, that you self-blame, that, you know, so many other things. And so that was really my cathartic healing process was writing that. And I felt like once I got done with that, I was ready to say, this is what I treat. I had done as many trainings that were out there at the time. And I just felt like I felt so alone. I want to be part of the process to make this different so that people in 10 years or at the end of my career or whatever, don't have to say there are no resources. They don't have to say there's no therapists that know what they're doing. And and so that's why, you know, I started Tennessee Reproductive Therapy, but why I made the Quilla Institute is because as a therapist, we're bound by state lines, but people were calling me from all over the world saying, can you help me? As a marriage and family therapist, I would say no. So I started the Quilla Institute so I could say yes. So It's been five, six years since, again, I only treat reproductive and maternal mental health. But it was only when I did my own healing that I felt like I was ready to do that. I I can understand that completely. I'm really grateful that you have stepped into this because um, I'm sitting here thinking, where was that book? <laughs> like, why did I not know that that was a thing? Uh, guys, we're going to link to all of Kathy's books on the show notes so that you don't have to say the same thing of where was this book, you know, two years ago, four years ago. Yeah. So 
kind of starting out at the beginning, do you have any advice for someone who's who's wondering if something might be off with her or her husband's fertility? Like, what are some of the first steps we take if we have an inclination that something might be wrong, whether something's hurting, whether something's not working the way that it should, whether we've been trying to get pregnant for a while and it's not happening as quickly as someone said it should. Like, what are our first steps there? So all the medical powers that be say that won't diagnose with infertility. Now, let me hear, and let me say also, I don't know if I'm going ahead. Infertility is a diagnosable medical condition. Many of us wear it as a badge of shame, right? So any problem that you're having with conceiving is a medical condition, not a feminine or male failure. So all the medical powers that be say that you have to try for a year before being diagnosed with infertility or going and getting treatment. If you're under 35, if you're over 35, they say six months. And so if you've been trying for a year, call your OBGYN and schedule an appointment and say, this isn't working for me. They're going to start running some tests. Their tests will be pseudo non-invasive. I'm not talking surgery. We're going to look at hormone panels. We're going to do blood work. They might do an HSG, which just means they're going to put some stuff in you to make sure your tubes are working right. And then if they find something that's wrong, they are going to send you to an RE, which is a reproductive endocrinologist. Um, and that's what we would call uh, an IVF doctor. If you have gynecological pain or have experienced a prior diagnosis, I have a client who was diagnosed at 14 with polycystic ovaries, don't wait the full year. If you have any indication that something might be wrong, perhaps there's sex upon intercourse, maybe pain with intercourse, sexual pain, that could be something wrong, uh, endometriosis, something like that. If he's unable to perform for a medical reason um, and complete the act of sex, okay, let's say climax, have an orgasm, then go to the doctor. You might also want to bring in a urologist if it's male factor infertility, but your RE can make that recommendation for you. So pain, go to the OB-GYN. You know if there's something wrong, right? Women know but I feel like we're always afraid of being too much. We're afraid of making a scene around ourselves. We're afraid of being needy because that's what we're conditioned to believe by society. If you feel like there's a problem with your body, by all means, go to the doctor. If you've ever had an irregular pap smear and you're trying to conceive, call your doctor. If there's pain, call your doctor. If there's problems with your husband, call your doctor. Even if you have a family history of, let's say, no sperm, call your doctor, get started. Why wait? A lot of us feel like, or a lot of women feel like, I don't want to go to the doctor because it's not bad enough yet. Hmm. It hasn't been long enough yet. And then they think, oh, I'm not going to go after one year. I don't want to be a burden. This is too much for me, whatever. But almost unanimously, what I hear is I waited too long. I waited too long. So if you feel like there's an issue, call your OBGYN. This is like just a soapbox thing for me, but it is crazy to me that 
it seems to me when, when my husband Carl and I were starting to talk about trying, I remember asking my friend who, uh, who is, was our, our doctor for a long time and asking her, like, is there something we need to do? Like, do we need to get a checkup before we start trying? Like to make sure everything's good. And she goes, no, you just, you just start trying. Okay. But what if something's off? She's like, well, you know, how it works is that you try for a year and then if that's not working, then you try to see if something's off. And it just is crazy to me that mm-hmm. people will have to go through 12 months of trying and 12 months of this crazy cycle where you have to hope enough to try and then you have to do the work of trying and then you have to pretend you're not hoping for two weeks, but you are hoping, but like you're trying to keep your hopes down so that you're not crushed. And then every single like symptom or sign either makes you feel like it did happen or it didn't happen. And then you find out that you're not pregnant and then you're crushed and you have to do that all over again, 12 times before anyone will help you figure out what's going on inside your body. I feel like you should be able to get tested at the beginning. That is my like soapbox. We don't live in a country of proactive medicine. Hmm. You have to have three miscarriages before they'll even test you to see if you have a clotting disorder or what the problem is. I just found that out like last week. That is insane to me. It's asinine, but the test is last time I checked a $6,000 test. And so insurance needs to know that there's a real reason in order to cover that. A lot of patients can't cover that out of pocket. So they say you have to have three. That's a whole lot of trauma for somebody to go through in order to be like, oh, I just need baby aspirin. I know. We're both shaking our heads right now. That's crazy. The other thing I wanted to to say really quick, because everything that you just talked about is stuff that Carl and I did. We we tried for, because I had a friend, she's actually a PA at, at an OBGYN office. She was just our person for for the first year. But because because she was our person, she let us, kind of start doing some testing just a little bit early. So it was like maybe 10 months or something. We just kind of got the ball rolling. But we did all of those things. And one thing I would say is I ended up having, she ended up having a baby. And so I needed to find a different provider. And when it comes to finding a doctor, I don't know if anyone else has experienced this, but like if you move around a lot, I've moved around a lot. It's hard mm-hmm. to like, I still don't have a GP. Like I still don't have a general general practitioner. I don't know. Like everyone asks who your doctor is. I'm like, I don't really, I don't know. I go to the minute clinic when I'm sick. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And and so it can be really daunting to find a doctor. And when it came time for me to find an, an OBGYN, I, I met with a couple of people. And the first person I, I met with just, I didn't feel totally like comfortable there. Mm-hmm. And I, it ended up taking me a couple of tries to find someone that I really liked and trusted both with the fertility doctor I ended up going to see and with the actual like OBGYN that delivered my girls. And I'm really glad that I did that work. Like it's, it Mm -hmm. can take a minute to find someone that you feel comfortable with, but this is just too big of a thing to like be kind of scared of your doctor or to be intimidated by them or to feel like they don't like you, that you're not totally like, you can't totally trust that they have your best in mind or whatever the thing is. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, it is. It is complicated, especially when you start looking for a reproductive endocrinologist. It's this really fine line between do you want them to be like have excellent bedside manner and be a really good friend or do you want them to be a really great scientist? Mm -hmm. And so you have to decide, especially when choosing an OB-GYN, you need somebody who's going to be able to hold your hand really well and somebody who you're also going to want to be able to catch your baby. 
Mm-hmm. So you don't want to be scared of them. Yeah. You need to be part of your team. And an ob is kind of like your general practitioner for all your feminine needs, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they need to know you. You need to be able to get a hold of them, not in a manipulative way, but if you have a question, you call their nurse, you need to get an answer that comes from the doctor. Yeah. You need them. You need to feel really comfortable with them. Yeah. Have, give yourself permission to interview them to find the right one for you and don't feel bad. Don't be like, well, I don't know where else to go or they already have my medical history or I don't want to start over, but I really don't like them. Find somebody who can be like, oh my gosh, you need to go to my OB-GYN. I love them. Yeah. Yep. I actually am switching right now because the doctor who delivered my my girls was awesome, but the front desk, I cannot get them to call me back. And it's been like months of this. And so I'm switching because I need to know that if something is happening, they were great the whole time I was pregnant, but I need to know if something's happening that I'm going to be able to get a hold of them. And so anyway, it's it's a frustrating process to find the right person for you, but if you're feeling that way, you're not alone. I'm right there with you. And right. it's it's important. You need someone, like this is a big deal. And, and you see these people a lot. Like you need to have them be people that you really trust and really know have your back. Unfortunately, a lot of OBGYN offices, I mean, they make their money through gyne- gynecology, not obstetrics a lot of times. And so I hear the complaint from a lot of people that they only care about me when I'm pregnant. Wait, so they make their money through obstetrics, not gynecology, or vice versa? They make a lot of money through with pregnancy. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So you're not alone in that. When we're done here, let me tell you about the doctors that I know here. Okay. Okay. I love that. Thank you. So if we are realizing that like something is off, or if we're starting to, you know, Go, if we're calling our doctor and we're starting to do some tests, what are some common emotional responses that you see? Like what, I, I don't even know this. Like, cause I mean, when, when we were going through this, I didn't know anyone else who was really. And so I don't know if my reactions, my feelings were like, yeah, everyone feels this way, which would have been really great to know. And so what are some common things that people are feeling as they're yeah. going through this? Great for me to know going through it also. Yeah. So statistically speaking, um, I think it's like two, I'm really bad with numbers. It's like two thirds of women going through infertility experience depression and like 60% of men, two thirds of women struggling with infertility experience diagnosable levels of anxiety. Okay. So we experience sadness and poor concentration and total, I guess the feeling of being consumed with it. I remember waking up and being like, I don't know what day it is, but I know it's calendar day 14 and I got to have sex. (laughs) Right. With, I mean, everybody that knows this journey is like, amen. Yeah. Because we all get that, which leads to my next point. It's sexual apathy. Because I don't want to have sex. Sex is just for baby making. And now sex is a chore and I don't even want to have it because, and I told my husband this, I don't want to try anymore, which means I don't want to have sex with you anymore because for me, that creates negative pregnancy tests or dead babies. And I can't handle that anymore. So we, I mean, 70% of women after 
or 70% of couples after infertility never recover their sex life. And so I know, right? And so we deal with loneliness. We feel like we're the only person, like we referenced earlier, the only person in the world that experiences this. And we don't just say like, oh, you know, I'll go back to my, my, I broke my elbow thing. I remember when I was diagnosed with infertility, she said, I'm so sorry, Mrs. Quill, you're infertile. I broke my elbow and they said, I'm so sorry, Mrs. Quill, you have a broken elbow. In one instance, I became something different. It was my scarlet letter. Did you ever read that book in high school? Mm-hmm. She had to wear a scarlet letter A uh, for adultery. I read the cliff note versions <laughs> and I fell asleep during the lecture, but that's all I know about it. Oh my gosh. You and I are soulmates. Keep going. <laughs> I love it. But when I broke my elbow, I was like, oh, you have a broken appendage. But when I, we get the diagnosis of infertility, we become infertile. It's like, hi, I'm Kathy. I'm infertile. Not like, hey, I'm Kathy. I struggle with, I told you about my heart condition. I have a heart condition and I struggle with infertility. And so it becomes something that shames us, that blames us. Marriages are torn apart. The divorce rate inside of infertility is twice the national average. Whoa. Yes. So, and and let me just say, I'll try not to get on too big of a soapbox, but we try and, or nowadays we refer to infertility in my profession as a reproductive trauma, reproductive trauma. So the idea of this is, is we all kind of have this reproductive narrative that we write growing up. For me, like my mom was a home ec teacher and I would love to watch her in the kitchen. She had parties and celebrated everything. I knew I was going to be the housewife extraordinaire. As we grow up, we start watching other people of our own gender. And so I had a babysitter. Her name was Krista. Krista had six letters in her name. This is another fun fact about me. My name used to be spelled C-A-T-H-Y, five letters. In second grade, I changed my name to C-A-T-H-I-E because it was six letters. I'm legally Catherine. But I changed my name because I watched Krista. I wanted to be like Krista, even down to the number of letters in her name. God bless my parents. And so as we grow up, we start to date. Like, do you want to be a parent? I do. Do you? No. That's grounds for dismissal, right? If you don't want to be a parent and I want to be a parent, like, We go our separate ways. Once we find the partner of our dreams, our reproductive narrative starts to be uh, written together. My example at the beginning, we're going to wait two years, have two, maybe three kids. That was the reproductive narrative we, we wrote together. For one in eight people, or for six and eight, seven and eight, I don't know numbers, seven and eight people, statistically, you are going to continue your reproductive narrative and you're going to have a baby without problem. For one in eight people, it's almost like this BC AD moment of time. I say that sometimes fast. I'm talking about like zero marker in time. It becomes this reproductive trauma. There have been studies that people going through infertility, when they get a brain scan, it lights up like somebody with post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, don't go to your parents and be like, hey, some chick on a podcast diagnosed me with PTSD. That's not what I'm saying. But for some of us, we start to exhibit some of the same symptoms. We become hypervigilant. We're always looking for something to go wrong. We become irritable, anxious, and we have poor concentration. We experience depression. We feel completely alone in all of our symptoms. And 
The only thing that makes us not meet the criteria, most of us, for a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis is the number one criteria, which means we have lived through or witnessed a near-death experience. Now, a lot of us in infertility haven't done that. Now, you might be saying, I almost died during an ectopic. Okay, well, that really changes that first one. But again, don't say some chick on a podcast diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm not doing that. But that's what we start living. Stephanie, as you described earlier, your month cycle. Now, I use this story with permission often. Three days before my 21st birthday, my brother was in a motorcycle accident that gave him a traumatic brain injury and left him a paraplegic. So he's in a wheelchair today. He's a miracle man. If you know somebody in a wheelchair, go look up wheelchair lacrosse. He invented it. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Yeah, so fun. He's a phenomenal human. He's married since and has a baby who I'm going to see in three weeks, four weeks. I mean, by baby, he's 11. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it took a second to catch up. might look, I mean, he's been a great human for a long time, mm-hmm. but he always just kind of feels like my baby. We look at my brother in his motorcycle accident and say, yes, he gets post-traumatic stress disorder. My brother's accident happened one time, one time. That was his trauma, one time. You, Stephanie, as you described, every day one, when you have to pee on a stick or start your period and the emotions come over and hope is met with pain, despair, shame, blame, self-hatred, unworthiness, a surrender of your woman card, right? And then you have to regain hope and then you have to have apathetic sex to try and conceive again. And then you have to go through the terrible two-week wait, which where we're hypervigilant. I used to sit in session, like crossing my arms and pushing on my boobs Like, do they hurt yet? Do they hurt? Am I pregnant? Right? Mm -hmm. And then you have to pee on the stupid stick again. Like, that's not fun or romantic or whimsy if you do get, you know, pregnant and it says positive. So we're living this new trauma every month. Now, with a trauma comes triggers. We go out and we get a baby shower invitation. Right? And hear me when I say a baby shower invitation is not a subpoena. You don't have to go. You can make a boundary and say, I love you. I'm going to love you from a distance. I'd love to take you for coffee so I can celebrate you individually. I just can't handle your party. And then you can love those babies when you want. Oh my gosh, what, Stephanie? I'm laughing laughing and nodding and like thinking like, why did we not have this conversation however long ago? I need to do the math at how long it's been. But like, seriously, where was this? And I did actually (laughs) say- Nashville. Like 20 minutes from you. Seriously, that's crazy. I definitely said no to some baby shower invitations. And I'm really glad. I'm really glad. I've also had some some dear friends. Like, I have handled this in several different ways. I've had friends do the same. And I just am really glad that you said that. We'll, we'll talk about friendship in a little bit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. As many of you know, I recently wrote a book, and while it was the most rewarding project of my career so far, it also came with a lot of hard work and long nights. And sometimes when things started to feel a little bit overwhelming, I needed to get a few things off my chest so I could clear my mind and keep the writing process flowing. And the thing that helped me so much to sort through those feelings was therapy. Now tell me if any of this sounds familiar. Maybe you're going through something really hard right now, a big loss or a gigantic life transition. Maybe you frequently feel anxious, depressed, overwhelmed, or just generally discouraged. 
Maybe you really, really, really want your life circumstances to change, but you don't know how to actually change them. Or maybe you're feeling stuck as you try to work through your past, navigate your present, or figure out your future. Friend, if you can relate to any of this, you're not alone. I've been there, and therapy has been the thing that has helped me more than anything else with all of this. In the last 10 years or so, I've learned that strength isn't proving I can do it on my own. It's knowing that I don't have to. I'm at my strongest when I have a full support system around me, and an essential part of my support system is therapy. Therapy can be absolutely life-changing, that is, if you can afford it and find a therapist you like and trust. But of course, this is easier said than done, and that's why I'm so excited to be partnering with this week's podcast sponsor. Our sponsor for today's episode is BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the easiest and most affordable way I've ever found to find a great therapist. It's entirely online and super easy to sign up. You can get started right away. And if you don't love the counselor you're paired with, switching is easy and it's free. If you're going through something hard in your relationships, or if you're in a funk you just can't shake, if you've been feeling anxious or depressed lately, or if you're feeling stressed and you need help balancing your everyday life and schedule, BetterHelp is an incredible resource for you. And I'm so thankful that they've given me a promo code that I can share with you to make it even easier to get started. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash friendship today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash friendship. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Friends, springtime is finally here, but that also means allergy season is in full swing. I have always struggled with allergies and I don't know about you, but I am especially allergic to cats. More on that in a second. Well, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. The time that I use Claritin the absolute most is when I'm at my parents' house, my childhood home. They have this absolutely beautiful cat that they love and I like, except for the fact that he sheds so much. So that means that I'm basically sneezing from the second I arrive home to the second I leave, unless I take Claritin. My dad has even started having it ready for me right when I walk in the door. Are you ready to live life as though you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Claritin, thank you so much for sponsoring our girls' night. We love having you. So there's triggers everywhere. There really are. There's, Everyone there's, and their mom, it seems like, are getting pregnant. You open up social media and it's like gender reveal city everywhere. Oh, get off Instagram unless you're going to be somebody who just is on infertility stuff. But yeah, that's really hard. But also there's ignorant people. And I don't say ignorant to be critical or condescending. 
but I say ignorant people because they haven't experienced it. Right. Yeah. And even sometimes we, people that have experienced, like I walked into a Christmas party a couple years ago and I was like, Hey, nice to meet you. Do you have any kids? And then I was like, Oh crap. That is like a go-to don't say it. Well, they were infertile anyways. So (laughs) it's a big deal. There's lots of emotions. I speak on it all the time. So I could really manipulate your podcast for the next three hours. I want to do that. (laughs) I'm I'm seriously so grateful to hear this because really, if you're, and, and like, it's just really uncommon. I think that you're going to go through this at the same time as a friend. Um, I actually have been really fortunate to have some friends who were just a little bit ahead of me or a little bit behind me in this, in this journey, but I didn't actually have anyone who's like right there with me on it or anyone who was like just ahead of me. And that was really hard because, because I don't know what's normal. I didn't know that the things I was feeling weren't like my own fault necessarily, or like, this is just, Mm -hmm. I just feel this way because I'm not handling it well or whatever that this is. No, this is like how this feels for a lot of people. Yeah. I don't want to say everyone because I know people handle things differently, but this is really normal. Totally normal. So Kathy, at what point should we be seeking help with Mm. this all? Like mental health. Yes. Mental health help. And where do we, where do we find that support? So statistically speaking, infertility does not go away. The mental health implications of infertility are not cured by pregnancy, right? It's a trauma. Yeah. It's not like the trauma is gone and I'm no longer in pain. All that stuff still continues. And that presents itself through anxiety during pregnancy, postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, postpartum psychosis and rage. Okay. Mm. So we need to deal with it in the middle of it. If you feel like you are more anxious than you want to be, you cry more days than you feel like is normal for you. You're fighting with your partner more. You are completely uh, just grossed out by the idea or angered by the idea of having sex. Go find somebody. Now, I'm going to say something and I don't mean it to be arrogant. There are very few of us. Mm. Remember my, my, uh, that textbook, I, that study guide, that six, 700 page book, two pages on infertility. We're doing better in the world of what we call reproductive and maternal mental health. Now I'm going to give you a big PSA though. There are a lot of people that say I work with marriages, so I know what to do with infertility or pregnancy loss, or pregnancy, or postpartum, unless somebody is trained in it. Like when I, I'll I'll tell you, you can email me and I'll do research for you in your own city. And what I'm going to look for is I'm going to look for people who only say, there was a lot of syllables and only there, (laughs) only say they treat infertility and pregnancy loss, pregnancy and postpartum. If they say, well, I treat schizophrenia and divorce and affair repair and kids and infertility, they don't specialize this Mm -hmm. in this. Something I find so often in people who are going through infertility is they'll, they'll go to a different practitioner, you know, they're closer and they take my insurance. Great. I had a client recently being like, I just saw a new therapist. 
um, and they didn't know what an IUI was. Do you know what an IUI is? During our first initial call, and I was like, it's in uterine insemination. Do you want me to tell you about the statistics around it? Because I can't. Like, find somebody who is an expert because it is going to re-trigger you in this trauma that you're experiencing. So find an expert. If you're in Tennessee, I can see you. If you're outside of Tennessee, I can see you. If you want somebody who's in your area and you aren't in Tennessee, email me. I'll help you find somebody good. I'm that committed to the work that I want you to see somebody who's going to help you thrive. Hmm. Wait, did you say if you're outside of Tennessee, I can or can't see you? I can. Look at thequillainstitute.com. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. I love that. This is, I don't know if I've shared this on the show before. Uh, I know I haven't because it's very new, but I started going back to counseling three weeks ago. Um, and yep. it's, yeah, it's been really good. But the counselor I'm seeing is like specializes in all of those things that you just said. And, and so one of them is specifically like the postpartum season. And I'm so grateful because I, you know, I get on the first call with her and I'm trying to explain what my life looks like. And my life is all like breastfeeding and hormones and like babies and childcare and sleep cycles and all kinds of things. And I started trying to like explain them to her, or I think I said something about IVF and I was like, that's, you know, do you know about IVF? And she did the exact same thing that you did. She was like, yes, this is exactly what, you know, she uh, like absolutely was steeped in this world of motherhood and all of its like processes and forms and stuff. And I was so grateful because I felt like, oh, you actually get me. So we can actually talk about the different things that I'm trying to figure out in this season of life right now, instead of trying to explain the season of life right now. And I just didn't realize how valuable that was until I experienced it. It's necessary. Again, off the the air, I want to know who you're talking about. I have a couple of clues, but yeah, I, I, I bet you do. So I, one of the things that you you kind of mentioned was um, walking to a Christmas party and people saying, like, do you have kids? Or, you know, you get married and it's like the second when you're dating, people go, oh, like, when are you going to get married? Or when you're single, people go, oh, are you dating anybody? It's like there are these triggers, these questions people ask you that just like send you spiraling. I think in high school, it's like, where are you going to go to college? You're like, I don't know. But, you know, that was something that I dreaded. I dreaded when people would ask us when we were going to get pregnant or when we were, you know, when we were thinking of having kids, because we were married for six years, I think Mm. six and a half years before, before our girls were born. Um, So we were married for a long time and people would ask us. And I remember going into a family function, trying to figure out what I was going to say. And I was talking to my dad about it. And I said, you know, dad, what am I going to say? Like when I walk in there, everyone's going to ask me. It's, I know they're going to ask me. And his suggestion was uh, that I say something like, you know, my parents never told me, like, you know, if someone was like, you know, when are you guys thinking of having babies? And my dad was like, tell them your parents never told you how, or like you never learned how if they want to explain it to you or something. Uh, But like, can you help us come up with some sort of answer that we can have in our back pocket so that it doesn't turn into this whole First of all, why are people asking and how can we answer so that we don't have to go cry in the bathroom afterwards? American culture is filled with, hi, how are you? Good, how are you? But we don't care, right? We have space filler, generic societal norm conversations that absolutely mean nothing. I think that we do that sometimes with like, we don't know what else to say. We don't know how deep to go, especially with somebody who we're just meeting or somebody that we haven't seen for a long time. Yeah. 
So it's this assumption of what, again, is a stupid societal norm of what should be going on in your life. Where are you going to college? Have you found the man of your dreams? Whatever. Hmm. And so it just becomes, you know, are you going to have kids? Do you want kids? Whatever. So here's what I'll say. Script it out before you get there. You don't owe anybody anything. If you're going with your husband, script it out with the two of you. will have one trite answer. If you can do anything preventative beforehand, um, like let's say you're going home for Christmas and you think your overbearing aunt might ask you a question, maybe shoot her a question and say, I just need you to know that we're not talking about this this weekend. Maybe she's asked you every Christmas, like, hey, Aunt Sue, just, you know, you've asked me every year. I just want you to know that I'm struggling. Can we keep that off the table? Because it's pretty personal. Okay. Mm-hmm. You also don't have to go if you don't want to somewhere that feels really overwhelming, you can make boundaries for yourself or you can go for a short amount of time. Like if there's a a period of time that you feel like people usually sit down and interrogate you with questions, Mm -hmm. maybe miss that part. Maybe go for Christmas when you're opening presents, but skip Christmas when everybody's just lingering and talking and drinking too much and asking too much. Yeah. Some, I I know a lot of people are like, Hey, I really want people to know me. So I'm going to say too much way, how you're going to walk away from that person. Are you going to feel really disappointed? Cause that person doesn't have emotional intelligence to meet you where you are. What do you want this person to respond knowing that they're probably going to get it wrong? I'm a really big advocate expressing needs. I always say make the covert overt. And so if you're saying, for example, you know, husband, best friend, parent, whatever, I'm struggling and I need you to just sit here and, and tell me I'm okay. Yeah. Overbearing aunt Sue, this is really personal, but I just appreciate you asking. Like you don't owe them anything or you can just be sarcastic. Like I would want to be and be like, oh my gosh, actually we had sex in the car five minutes ago. Do you want me to tell you who's on top? But maybe that's totally inappropriate. <laughs> I don't know that I would actually say that, but that's sometimes like it's that personal. It is. It is a hundred percent that personal. You're like talking about, it, and I mean, sometimes I actually don't mind talking about it, especially because I know that nobody is, and you know, I'm totally willing to be the friend that's like, this is how many, you know eggs we got at my egg retrieval when, you know, during IVF or something. It's or this is what it was like. Or but what we're actually talking about is like the most personal, tender parts of our bodies and our like relationships and our hopes for our future. And I mean, we're like, we're, it's just a really, personal. it is so personal. Yes. Yes. I mean, they're like, oh, well, we're trying when, tell me about your sex life. because that's what you're asking from somebody. And some people, like if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't, you know, I, I know that they're trying and I don't know how to ask. I might not be doing infertility stuff, but like my friend is, and I'm just scared to ask. Yeah. I think a good question is like, tell me what's new in your relationship. Hmm. How's stuff in the family? Maybe if they're experiencing secondary infertility, which is the inability to have a child after number one. So it's infertility after you conceive and have a life birth. Is there anything up upcoming in your family that you can share with me? Mm-hmm. Right? 
like in my paperwork, it's so traumatizing for us to go to a new doctor, any new doctor, therapist or whatever. And it says, how many, how many pregnancies have you had and how many births have you had and how many living children do you have? My paperwork says, tell me about your reproductive journey because it can be super hard. And I don't want anybody to check boxes and feel totally triggered by that when they have to write zero or you know, seven pregnancies, like I write four pregnancies and zero births, surgeries, hysterectomy, like, and every time I just want to go up there and be like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This is stupid. My heart hurts right now. That That's, yeah, wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, I think when it comes to, when it comes to answering questions, I really, really had to think through it ahead of time because it just, I'm, I'm, when you said the thing about like wanting to be known and so you'll share too much, like I just, you're talking about me. I wonder if anyone else was sitting there like laughing as you're saying that, like, oh, are you reading my mind? Um, cause I'm totally, I totally will do that. But yeah, I'll walk away going, I don't feel more known. I feel criticized or I feel, feel emptier. I feel, yes, I feel emptier when really what I was trying to do is connect. And so I had to practice. I had, I really had to practice. And so I think that I I have it written out somewhere, but the thing that I came up with was thanks so much for asking. That's something I actually am only sharing with the very closest people in my life. But what I am doing is this and share about my, usually I'll share about my work or a trip I just took or a house project I've been doing or something like that. Because I do know that most of the time, the people asking aren't trying to be rude and aren't trying to like pour salt in your deepest current wound. They're just trying to connect with you and and we're just kind of dumb about it. Yeah. Or, you know, say what's new in your life or, you know, just kind of like turn it around, send the direction uh, or send the conversation in a different direction. But I really had to practice because like I had to practice saying it out loud because otherwise I knew that I would start talking about like the latest test we just underwent and, that's not any of their business and and not something that would make me feel better. It would, would have been something that made me feel worse. You're right. Something on that topic actually is when in my friendships, I like usually want to talk to my friends about most things and not everybody, not all friends, not everyone who I'd consider a friend, you know, knows everything about my life, but my very closest people, I want to talk to you about most things. But when it actually came time for us to try to get pregnant and go through the, like, you know, that year, and then when we started going through, you know, all the tests, and then when we started going through IUI, and then when we went through IVF, I found that I wanted to talk about it, like, not at all. I I would talk about it a little bit here and there, but not very often. And it just, it surprised me. Like, Mm -hmm. it surprised me how little I wanted to talk about it. How do we figure out, like, how do we walk that line between asking for the support that we need from the people who really will be there for us in in the way we need it, but also like, so so we're not shutting down because I feel like going through it by ourselves and just completely siloing ourselves isn't helpful or healthy, but how do we walk the line between like asking for the help that we need, but also being okay with not sharing things if we don't want to? So are you saying like, how do you communicate that to other people or how do you discern it in your own? Like, how do you discern it in your own heart? I guess if anyone else is finding that they don't want to talk about it, Mm -hmm. how do you know if like, if that's an okay thing or if you're like cutting yourself off in a way that's harmful to you? 
So a symptom of depression is social isolation. And so that's a really fine line for me. I would, I, it's okay to not want to talk about. It is hard. It bleeds into every single area of our life. If you're thinking like, Hey friend, we're going out for coffee. I'm going to send you a text and say, I just, I know you probably want to know about infertility. I can't go there today. Can we take it off the table? Um, just being really overt about it. But if you're also thinking, I can't see humanity because everybody's fertile. I can't go to target. I can't do the things that I love. I just want to stay home and hide in bed. That's problematic. And you need to talk to somebody because when we talk about depression, we think social isolation, loss of interest in pleasurable things, low motivation, among other things. And so just make sure you're not going into that arena, but check in with yourself. How does it feel to talk about it right now? Mm -hmm. Do I feel overwhelmed? Is it beneficial to me? Do I leave disappointed? Am I, am I trying to extend these like emotional olive branches to people and say like, Hey, can you just see me? And if you're leaving vacant after, maybe we need to reevaluate the people that you're communicating that to. Yeah. But I think, I think it's okay to set boundaries. I also think Stephanie, to your point in your experience that you're like, Hey, I want to be seen. And then you get down into really intrusive things into your body. And I might feel like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. This feels really vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It's okay to, you know, Hey, everybody, I know I've been open. I'm going through some personal stuff with it. I prefer that the next time we talk about it, I bring it up. Yeah. I like that. I, that's something that I've practiced a lot, especially in our marriage. I feel like that's something that Carl and I always do is, and I don't even know like where we learned it, but just to say like, this is what I, I'm going to tell you this and this is what I need. Or, Hey, I'm feeling like I need just a little bit more attention today. Can you give me a little more attention today? Or, you know, I want to like, Stephanie, just, that's amazing. I, I mean, it's so, I can't read his mind and I know he can't read my mind. And so we just try to like do some of the work for each other by just being a little bit more clear about what we need Otherwise, out of each other. Otherwise, we set the other person up for failure. Yeah. Yes. Right? I want my husband to succeed. And so I'm going to tell him exactly what I need, not to be bossy, manipulative, or demanding, but like, hey, I'm really hormonal right now. Can you just come sit next to me and hold my hand and shut up? <laughs> right? Yes. I don't need you to fix it. Yeah. But if I'm all moody and, you know, not myself, and he thinks, oh my gosh, what did I do? And he, you know, goes down his own spiral. Mm-hmm. That's not healthy either. But just saying like, here's what's going on. Here's yeah. what I need. Can you help me meet that need? Great. Yep. Yep. I love, I love that. that you guys do that. It's, it's really helpful. <laughs> it's been really good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we talked about how when I think it's like, right. It happens with all kinds of things. Like you all of a sudden are you are thinking of buying a new car and you are thinking of maybe getting a Mazda and then you're driving down the road and every single car you see is a Mazda and you've never noticed them before. Or like you're hoping to get engaged and all of a sudden you can't see anything but anyone else's what, you know, engagement rings. I think the second we're trying to get pregnant, it seems like the whole world is trying to get pregnant and, and doing it. And, and I know that a lot of times in our friendships, we're in different spots. Like Mm -hmm. I have friends who got pregnant and had kids while we weren't able to have kids, like yeah. we, you know, it wasn't happening for us. And I know that I, you know, just had my girls and I have friends who are still very much in, in their own journey of figuring out like 
why they're trying to get pregnant and it's not happening. Sure. How do we cross that? Like, I know that we can't just be friends with people who, and, and I hate that. I hate the idea that like, now that I'm a mom, I can only have mom friends. I think that's crazy. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's us missing out on so much. But how do we cross those like divides when we're in one spot and our friends are in a totally different spot? Oh, it's so hard because pregnant people are one of those triggers. Yeah. Right. And so I think, I think it goes back to a little bit of the scarlet letter that this isn't your identity and pregnant people are not better women. It's not like God's like, okay, I think they'll be a mom, a good mom and Kathy won't. So I'm going to make her barren. No, we're just on different journeys. And I think if we can stop looking at each other and being like, she is a better person because she drives a Tesla. No, she's a person with a different kind of car or, oh my gosh, she is more attractive because she doesn't have a thigh gap. No, she burns metabolism different, Mm. right? It's okay to say like, we're in really different seasons. I still really enjoy your company. Can you not vent to me about being a mom? Yeah. Right. Like, you know what? I am feeling really vulnerable because of everything going on. Can we go to a movie so I don't have to see your bump, but I'd really love to spend time with you. Yeah. Right. We have to find things that feel like I'm sure Stephanie, when you became a mom, you were like, but what about all my friends who are still in waiting? Yeah. How do I, how do I friend them? Yeah. We're not just friends. Our husbands just don't love us for our ability or inability to fill our womb. Yeah. Find other common areas. Like maybe you both love paddleboarding or kayaking or rock climbing. Go do those things instead of, you know, talking about somebody's birth experience. Yeah. And it's also okay. The relationships change. Yeah. Really is. It's sad and it's another area of grief, but it happens. Yeah. I think that one of my goals in my life has been to be like, it's always been really, I think, wounding for me. And mostly I think like I've watched it really hurt the people around me when someone gets married and all of a sudden acts like they're part of some club that like single people wouldn't get. Like there are things that we can only talk about with our married friends. Yeah. And, uh, and same with being a mom. It's like you will, well, you wouldn't understand. You'll understand when you become a mom. It's like that infuriating thing. People will be like, we'll tell you when you're older. Like, okay, what does that mean? I just, and, and I think that some people like we, you know, we all have our own things. I think, I don't know, maybe if you get married and and everything is wrapped up in that, then that's your own thing that you're going through, that your identity is way too wrapped up in your marital status. Or, you know, mm-hmm. if you, you know, we just, we're just all going through our own things, but it's always been a huge goal of mine to not sit at different tables because I have different things going on in my life or to, mm-hmm. or to not act like other people wouldn't be able to sit at my table because they don't have the exact same people or relationships or circumstances in their lives. I just think our friends, I know our friendships can exist when we're in different stages of life and we're, we're much better for it. One of my best friends has given me 
the best encouragement in the last four months of becoming a new mom and she doesn't have kids. And, and it's just the best encouragement I have. It, I, it's literally my lock screen right now or text from her mm-hmm. and she doesn't have kids. And it's about like, and she's, she's helping me figure out what the heck it means to be a mom. And, mm-hmm. and her words are more valuable to me than like, it's truly, her words are more valuable to me than anyone else's have been. And she doesn't have kids. And so I think we're missing out on a lot if we are only friends with people who are in our same stages of life. And we're not giving our friends enough credit if we act like they wouldn't understand. Because right. I think we can if we try. You're right. You're right. Kathy, this is, I didn't, totally didn't prep you for this, but I know that there are women listening who are at various stages of this whole journey. Would you be willing to pray for them? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. And actually, we're going to have to have you back. <laughs> so, because they're like, I literally, I'm looking at my questions right now. <laughs> We didn't get through all the ones that I had for today. And then there's like a couple spaces and it says more questions for Kathy for future interviews. <laughs> so, anyway, sorry, we're going to have to have you back. Okay. But yeah, before we go, I would love it if you would just pray for, for any woman who is listening who is just needing it right now. Yeah. Father, we we thank you for your word. And then in it, it says you create us in our mother's womb. God, that even in the middle of infertility, when it feels like we're so broken, and that our bodies are just full of shame and who we are as women is questionable. God, that who, what our bodies are and how they function isn't a surprise to you. And so, Father, I uh, I also trust you to be a healer. And so, God, for, for the women who are struggling, for the women who for the last hour have been bobbleheading along and saying, oh, my gosh, that's me, or crying silently because that's how we we do it as not to interfere with those who are getting on with life when it feels like just normal. God, I pray that you would heal hearts. I pray that you would heal wombs. I pray that you would heal eggs and sperm in Jesus name. God, for those who are experiencing depression and anxiety, Lord, we know that that's not from you and we know that you can heal that. There's no shame when we get there, Lord. But for them, I also pray for courage and bravery to reach out and say, I'm not okay. We look at that as a sign of weakness, God, but it's a sign of bravery and strength. God, for marriages that are shook by this, for relationships that are shook by this, God, I pray, Lord, that you would just send the Spirit as a Prince of Peace over these people into these homes. And God, uh, give them a sense of contentedness in the Spirit even if they're not content in their own season. And God, I just pray asking in, in, in Jesus's name that there would be fruit in the form of children over the women that are listening to this podcast. God, I pray for a life. I speak life. God, I know that you're the author and giver of that. You tell us to be fruitful and multiply, which I know is so traumatizing to hear preached from a stage, but God, you ask us and those, God, thanks even for those in your scripture, the stories in scripture of those who have struggled, Lord, you've given those in such detail. Thanks for meeting us there as women. And God, I pray that those would be stories of hope. And God, I pray that you would fill wombs like you did for women in scripture. God, I pray that you would fill wombs, give life and give reconciliation and hope. We love you, Father. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kathy. You're welcome. 
guys, isn't Kathy amazing? I am so grateful for her. Don't forget that if you ever want to find any of the links for anything we talk about in our Girls' Night episodes, you can always find those over in our show notes. Just head over to girlsnightpodcast.com and you'll find links for everything, including links for Kathy so you can pick up her books and follow along with all the great stuff she's doing. All right, that's it for today's episode, but we have so much good stuff still ahead this season. And with that in mind, now is the perfect time to make sure you're subscribed. Subscribing to the show is the best way to make sure you never miss an episode. It won't send you an email or anything. It just makes sure your phone downloads the latest episode when a new one's released. And I did want to take a second to ask you guys a favor. If you enjoyed this episode or if you've been a Girls' Night fan for a while now, would you take just two quick seconds to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes? Those reviews help out our podcast so much and it really would mean the world to me. So if you take two quick seconds to do that, I'd be so grateful. Friends, thanks so much for joining me for Girls' Night and I'll see you next week.